welcome back to the Prairie Pod. We are so excited today, as we usually are, but I am more excited today because I have a cupcake. (laughs) Sorry, I just wanted to leave with that. So I'm Megan Benich. I'm a regional ecologist with the DNR, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host. Jessica Peterson. I am the invertebrate ecologist for the Minnesota Biological Survey. And we've got a fabulous special guest with us here today. Marty, you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Marty Baker. I work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service out of Wyndham, Minnesota. That was very good. You were really articulating that for the masses. Well. When it was good, like, pronunciation. Wyndham, Minnesota. It's good. I've been known to do that, I guess. Did you prep for this, Marty? Define prep. Of course I did. <laughs> I didn't prep. I just got the cupcake, and then I said, Marty's going to do a great job. I'm not worried about it. Yes. Jess and I have spent a lot of time with Marty in the field. Um, often it's raining, or it's windy. or What was that one time we were doing a plant training, plant ID training, which we often do in summer months, uh, like now. And old Marty <laughs> was out there co-teaching with me. And we it definitely, was it was cold, it was cold, it was June and it was cold. Yes. And it started to rain. Are you sure it didn't snow? No, <laughs> <laughs> we had everybody huddled and we had, it I think was. there were like five people who still had their notebooks out who were super dedicated. They're like, I'm going to learn. We're going to learn all these plants. And then I just kept looking at Marty like, uh, what, why don't we go into the car? Because this just seems not <laughs> safe. Can we please leave and get warm? We did call it. It, we did in the end, but then when we went later in the afternoon, we went down below. It wasn't nearly as windy, so it was much wow. nicer. That's how hills but, work. You're right. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Just double checking to make sure we know. <laughs> oh gosh! So we're featuring Marty because not only is he special to co-teach with, but he's super special just in general. So you have worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service. For how long? Well, my uh, my dates on my when I started is 28 years. Is how long officially? But of course, I worked several years before that. So I started in 1983. And they just didn't pay you, so you're not officially. Did you just follow people around and say that you were working? I, I for actually <laughs> volunteered. <laughs> oh, okay. It, it's because you know. You need to find any job you can when you're first going to college, and that's basically what I did. I thought you just like stole somebody's tan shirt, Stupid. and you were like, I'm no, here, no, I'm with the They would wildlife. not let you just wear a uniform. I was not able to wear a uniform at you that know, time. Jess doesn't know this story, but one of my first jobs when I was in college, I worked for Mass Audubon. It was probably, other than this job, the best job I've ever had in my life, other than this job. And my job during the day was to teach kids about the natural heritage of Cape Cod. And then in the afternoon, I led tours, like nature hikes and boat tours. And I'd be like, look, a seagull. (laughs) And people loved it. Or we'd go uh, dig up clams and do all this kind of thing. So the whole point of the story, because of the shirt, is that they had these tan Mass Audubon shirts hanging in the office. And every time I would get to the afternoon part of my job, I would get so excited to wear that tan shirt because I was like, I'm legit. I'm a, Official. I work for Mass Audubon. I'm a biologist in this tan shirt. It was like an extra large. It was too big for me. I had to tie it at the waist. 
but I felt so cool. Jess, did you ever have a shirt like that that you felt cool about? No, no, I've never, I've never had a shirt like that. I've known people that have though, so I see where this kind of shirt envy is coming from. This isn't about Megan's stories. This podcast <laughs> is about Marty Baker and a legacy of conservation with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We do. We love spending time with Marty in the field. So, Marty, 28 years, that's a long time. Tell us a little bit about you, What about your background. What made you you? How did you become to be the Marty that we know today? <laughs> yes, that's it. Well, a, a little bit. I grew up in rural Minnesota, just, you know, like most people, I should say, that's where I came from. Um, a small town called Cleveland, which is, you know, probably about 15 miles away or thereabouts. Um, and I grew up with like eight brothers and three sisters on a dairy farm. And you can't, everybody, stay on that farm. There's not work for all 11 of you, of 12 of you. That is correct. That's yes. a dozen. That's like a herd. <laughs> so anyhow, and I don't know what, you know, teacher in high school, you know, whatever. They, somebody told me that I could do something else. And of course I was rather skeptical and I was like, what? You can't get paid for learning about, you know, natural resources. What, what do you do with that? So of course, what do you think? You think, a conservation officer that's the only thing you could do with that well as I um, graduated my first work with the Fish and Wildlife Service in 1983 I had quite the eye-opening experience and I learned that you can learn about prairie and I met the a person his name is Larry Hansen and Larry Hansen is like an encyclopedia type of person. I learned more from Larry Hansen on the tailgate of a pickup than I ever learned out of a classroom. That's just how he is. So he's been a great teacher for me. Um, and from then on, we have become very good friends and I've learned a lot over the years to uh, plant prairie. He probably is the one that I should, you know, say has done more of it than I have, and I've just learned more from him. You know, this is how we feel about you. At first. <laughs> <laughs> You're our Larry. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and you know, you, you find that person who you can, you know, you, you learn well from, or, or whatever the case may be, you connect with that person, however that works out. And for me, you know, if I have a question, that is the person I ask questions to. He and Do you still ask him he, questions? Absolutely. I love it. Yeah, I think we're gonna go fishing soon. Oh. So we get to uh, get together from time to time. He learned that if you just put the seed out there, it will grow. Back in the in the seventies and eighties, I believe that managers weren't confident that you could get prairie seeds to grow and be robust and end up with good habitat. 
because have you ever heard of DNC? DNC. DNC. Dense I've heard nesting of DNC. cover. Is what Run it, DNC. <laughs> is what it stood for. Dense and nesting dense cover. Dense nesting cover is what they planted. Because when they would do nest dragging, you could learn that you'd find more nests in anything that had some residual height to it and had a little bit more sturdy plants there. So they come up with this mix, and it was basically brome grass, alfalfa, and sweet clover. Oh, boy. And it did work for a few years, and then it turned into a, well, a, a weed patch. Yeah, you're making a face. <laughs> not so great. Not so diverse. <laughs> maybe not Maybe Correct. not the best for the full biology of the Correct. life Absolutely. cycle. Correct. Absolutely. But, and so, and Larry saw that, and so he was trying other things, and, you know, he he was the one that started our snow seedings and our, you know, other types of uh, seedings, because, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, everything was planted with a drill, and that isn't always exactly appealing 30 years down the road when you still see things in a row. At least it's not appealing to me. Because <laughs> you want it to look more natural. <clears throat> Most definitely, right. yes, yes. So, um, other things about me. Well, I did work for the state as well for several years. Which in state? The state of Minnesota. I was just checking. That's okay. <laughs> sure, you, the state of could, the union? I didn't know. <laughs> it could happen, but no, no. The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And I worked in uh, Medelia at the research station and with uh, oh, wildlife, I guess, up in um, Thief River, it was. You've yeah, been all over the state. I worked out of uh, just on the edge of Agassiz National Wildlife Refuge. They had two units that they would what have uh, hunting um, blinds, and you had to manage those blinds or talk to people and see how, how successful they were and do bag checks and stuff like that. It was interesting work, but. So how did you, why did you want to work for the Fish and Wildlife Service then? So you had all this great time with the DNR, but then you wanted to work for Fish and Wildlife. So I'm trying to understand what made you make the switch. Well, one goes where you get hired. It, it's, <laughs> it's true. But um, I, uh, I did work for both of them. And I did like the Fish and Wildlife Service more probably because I was able to work with prairie and and that's I don't know it was just um, once I learned all the different plants and all the different ways that they interact and it, it just spoke to me or just I don't know I connected with it somehow so that's where I was able to work so that's where I worked in the wetland districts so I worked in Morris wetland district first and then now I work in Wyndham well, we're not holding it against you because we're oh. all in partnership together. Good. So we Good. don't care which tan shirt you're wearing. We're just happy you're wearing one of them. <laughs> Doesn't matter. So there. So, Marty, tell us a little bit about the Wyndham District, the landscape context, size. What are you aiming for in terms of function? Tell us a little bit. Give us a give us a picture of the, the places where you work. Well, the Wetland District is in southwest Minnesota, the center of it is about Wyndham. Um, it 
is 13 counties, goes from the South Dakota border and Iowa border to about Redwood Falls to the north and to Austin, Minnesota to the east. Um, like I say, it's 13 counties. It's about 18,000 acres of land that we manage, um, and it is mostly all prairie. Now, the prairie on the out in Rock County, Pipestone County, is going to be quite a bit different than the prairies on the east side of the district, um, where you'll find more of the, you know, hardwood. Um, the oak savannas and, and stuff like that, which surprising there's some still there, and and it's interesting to see how they are very similar and how they're different. I didn't realize it was so big. Did you know it's that big, Jess? The one I'm... I yeah, I've looked at it on the GIS layer before. It's huge. I don't know how all the work gets done. It's amazing. I know it is amazing. It, it is a lot of driving, isn't it? <laughs> it's a lot it's, of driving. I know. It's, it is, but that, that's what it is. So a uh, waterfall production area is kind of just how it sounds. It's, it's uh, designed for waterfowl production. And of course, then you would expect it to have wetlands and uplands on it. And hence we manage waterfowl for, or we manage the land for good wetlands not just one particular type of wetland, multiple sizes and depths and, and such, as well as good habitat. We call that diversity. There. It's good. We like to mention that as many times as we can on the podcast. That's right. So to, just to clarify, just to make sure. So the production area is just a complex of habitat. You're not actually ever releasing waterfowl out there. This is just a common misconception, so I want to... That is a great point, Megan. We do not release any waterfowl out there. We provide habitat for waterfowl to be prosperous. So if you build it, they will come. They will Or come. they'll fly in this case. Or they'll fly right in. <laughs> fly right in and land there. Yes. I like it. So why did you come back to Wyndham? Back to Wyndham. Yeah. Or well, I mean, not back, but to this it, area. To this area. Well, I guess um, probably I I obviously have a connection with farming. Um, grew up on a farm and, and, and such. And I felt I could probably do some of my best work in areas that may not have, you know, great quantities of habitat, great quantities of native prairie left over and such. But I feel I can connect to farmers and help coach them so that they don't necessarily have to um, put in production every corner of their property. Some can be left wild. Do you still have cows? I do. I do. Did, you identified a cow for me in my office earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was obvious. It was as plain as the nose in your face type of thing to me. It was a dairy cow. So do you still do you have Holstein cows? I do not. I oh, do okay. not. I, th that would mean I would have to milk, and that would mean I'd be very way too busy to <laughs> actually not gonna do, do my it. job. Okay. <laughs> I have a couple beef cattle. Okay. Do they have names? Uh, yeah, some of them do. 
right, well, I was just checking. I just wanted to know if their I names are like... I did not name them, though. That would be my wife's uh, thing. So they don't have, like, natural resources names, like this is Mallard and this they, is... They don't. They don't. They, they have simple names like cows. <laughs> Mostly <laughs> roast beef and, <laughs> and chuck roast for me, but... Okay. These are the names that your wife came up with. No, nope, they're my names. Oh, okay. Just double checking. <laughs> Lena and Oli are two of them. Well, of course. Yes. Wouldn't be Minnesota without Lena there, and Oli. There we go. You're gonna eat them last, though. Well, Lena probably not. She's gonna be a production cow. Oli, gonna be a good freezer <laughs> space. We're just sorry. We're going off script. I just had to. <laughs> I just wanted to know more about the cows. Okay. As usual, that's a that's a, uh, a whole other podcast topic, <laughs> Marty and his cows. So, Marty, you've you've lived in this area for a long time and and worked in it for a lot of time as your your tenure as a biologist. Tell us a little bit about how you've seen the landscape change. What's what's happened to this to Southwest Minnesota since you've been around? Well, to say it, it changed a lot, I I. You know that that I don't see it as a big change. We're making small steps as we can, and and you know, making good habitat where we can, and and even changing some of our habitat. Because let's face it, um, 20 years ago when we were seeding a piece of property, we would seed it if we were lucky with you know five grasses, type of thing, and and thought we did a really good job. And as we've learned in the past. 15 years or so, you know, it, it really needs more diversity is what habitat needs. And that's, I, I've done it to several pieces of property. I call it a conversion site. And it's where you may have, actually you may have some warm season grasses or you may have a, just a cool season grass. And you can do multiple different things to it, but in the end you want to end up with a good mix of grasses and forbs to create good habitat. What's your favorite way to take habitat that's maybe not at the quality or the level of diversity that you want and you're going to shift it? Like what's your with and add more forbs? Like what's your favorite way to do that? Yeah. Well, I mean be specific. It, you, like so fall, winter, spring, like if you had to pick one, if I only gave you one choice. Let's say warm season grass dominated stand. What's your well, that that I've actually got less experience with, so I so I don't have you know, ten or fifteen years of doing that, so I can't say how uh, exact that's going to end because what I really don't know is how many of those old grasses that are many times are not of local ecotype are still out there, which you know makes me a little nervous over time. Um, but we've done it. You end up with better habitat. And I suppose the best way is to just do a prescribed burn in the spring. If, if there are a good amount of cool season grasses in there, you can spray that and just seed it. You can seed it most months of the year, but my favorite is in the fall time or winter time, uh, dormant seeding. Broadcast. That is correct. And do you just use an all-form mix? You can, but many times I'm going to add several grasses because many of those older seedings 
you know, like I said, you're lucky if we had five grasses in there. So we're going to add five more, seven more, 10 more, so that we end up with 12 to 15 and 25 to 30 forbs. Because this idea that you don't just, to get diversity, you need it on both sides. You need to make sure you fulfill the guilds. Fulfill the guilds. Cool season, warm season, non-legume, legume fork. Yes. I like it. We're just doing Early, a recap. Then. mid, and late <laughs> season flowering. Yes. I, have you noticed, uh, this is something I've been noticing, is that some folks have a perception of restorations that's a little out of date. And maybe it's just because, you know, a lot of our restorations were planted during that time and we don't have, you know, all the resources necessarily to go back and add in those that extra diversity, um, but I think it's really important for for folks when when we're talking about restoration to talk about this this evolution. You know, we talked about it last season with um, with Dave Traba, and we're getting a very similar message today. But I think you know when when we talk about whether or not um, they're just not all created equal. They're not. They're not all the same. And so, um, do you find that, Marty, when when you're talking with folks about about restorations, you, there's like these different eras of of our restorations, right? And now we're kind of cycling back. Maybe starting at some of those with the brome and the the alfalfa and and adding diversity to those. But yes, yes, I do. It it uh, you know like I said, back in the day, it was called DNC, and and that is you know so far removed from what we do today but we perhaps you know I don't I don't want to blame it on the people who did that back in the 70s they thought that they were doing the best they had we were learning know? absolutely Restoration and, is a young and, science and, and I mean, we we're still know. not all learned yet type of thing no we it's gotta, complicated yes if it was easy you just Most give me a recipe and <laughs> just tell me this there. is what I need to do. Yes. If the land, if you tell me, this is what people always say. They say, tell me when to plant my prairie. You find that people ask you this question, like, what's the, I just asked to you, like, when's the best exact time to do this? Yeah. What you should have said to me is tell me what the weather's going to be yeah. in the next <laughs> 12 months and I'll tell you what to do. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, but you can't you face. can't do that because once you put it down, the weather's going to be what the weather's going to be, and 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 you, you know, you're you're back to being a farmer. You're just wishing and and hoping that it will it will work. But you know, I I cannot say that I've ever had a seeding not work. It just doesn't fail. It it happens that some don't work as well, but it, they don't fail. These native plant or native seeds and, and plants are amazingly hardy, and they can take any of Minnesota weather. It, it they do well in it. Um, the workload, of course, it's easier to do in the wintertime when I'm seeding, and, and it's it's easier because I that's a less you know busy time. Um, they work just fine in the spring. I planted thousands of acres in the spring. I planted thousands of them in the fall and in the winter. They all work. You do have to be patient, though. That's it's probably the hardest part. Prerequisite. <laughs> Jess and I aren't good about being patient, especially when it's snack time. That. <clears throat> that, that's a tough one. I'm not a patient person at all. <laughs> Speaking of patience, um, 
Megan and I have a lot of weird things that happen to us while we're on the job. Marty, what is the weirdest thing that has happened to you while you were on the job? You got to keep it PC here, Marty. This is, you know, we're, I, we're recording this, so. I, <laughs> well, we want to know. I wrote nothing down on that question because <laughs> I it is it's like, well, what? holy cow! But I will have to say one, and I was working with Larry Hansen, and we get this landowner, and the uh, the poor man would get <laughs> so upset that he would lose his balance and fall right on the ground. No. Not once, but like <laughs> five times. I, And, you know, I'm a young person, and I'm like, what is going on? Thank goodness he did leave, but it was, it stuck with me. The poor guy was just beside himself over what we were doing. Can you say what you were doing? Yes, we were working on some tile lines and working on a wetland restoration. So, of course, we were taking some of the tile out of the ground, and then we would daylight his tile, which means bring it to the surface and let the water fill our wetland. But, you know, he didn't know, or that wasn't easily conveyed to him. So it was a little challenging. Those are really challenging issues. It's not a it's not an isolated incident. Those are, those yeah. are tough things to deal with. It happens. It does. Okay, so we're gonna move from your weird yeah. thing to what was your one of your favorite moments on the land? And this is where I know it's hard to choose. Oh yeah. Because yeah. so many good things happen when you're out on the land, especially when you're out on the prairie land. Yes. Doesn't have weird things happen, but we have good things happen too. Well, usually what what it comes down to is, you know, you're out, you've got a group of kids or a group of adults, um, you know, and it's those moments when people look at you, it's like, I didn't know that. Or or the light bulb kind of turns on and they're like, wow, I, I had no idea prairie was like that. Or I had no idea that that biology worked that way. Or, you know, so it, it's... To me, it's an education thing many times to people, and they, they just don't realize that the, the natural sciences um, will just explain a lot of things that you know, they didn't know or they didn't realize worked that way or whatever the case may be. So it, it's when you get that landowner to kind of look at you like, oh, that's how that works. It, it just is a satisfying thing that you you connected with that person and and you know they of course then realize that you're not there just pulling their leg you're there actually with meaning so that's great yeah those educational opportunities are fantastic um, so Marty we we love learning from you too, and I'm just curious what accomplishment you're most proud of that you've done during your tenure with the service. Well, you know, I didn't write much down for that either, but I'll be honest, what it is is habitat and acres. You know, you just, I just can't help but be proud of over the years, you know, when I first started seeding back in the 
what I think I started in Wyndham in 1990, what we had to seed with was a, a drill and, you know, maybe seven grasses type of thing to look, and you can still see those seedings out there. Um, and you look at some of those that we did in ni- late 90s and, and early 2000s when we were harvesting some of our own native prairie and, you know, mixing that with some other grasses that we had up another piece or whatever. And it, it's just amazing how those look year after year. And, and it, you know, they never look the same, but that all is up to the weather and up to uh, the soil conditions and, and so on and so forth like that. But that is what I'm most proud of is how those acres look and how many of those acres we have. Well, it's a huge accomplishment. You should be proud of that. And it's succession too. I just want to point out other than weather and all these other things, prairie habitats don't stay the same. No. They move through succession. So they're always changing. So what you see one year, and that's the hard thing as a manager, right? Is that you have to be like, what it was yesterday, I have to let go of that because I'm in this for the long term. So yes. you've been doing this, we keep saying a long time, and we're not saying it to, we're saying it because we admire you. <laughs> we're impressed with all that you've accomplished. But if you had to give one piece of advice to up and coming biologists, land land conservationists, land managers, what would it be? Like, what would you say to them? You know, you got to figure out what you, what stirs you, what you think you can become good at and work on that. Because, you know, I'm, to be honest, I'm probably not real good at managing people. That, that is not my place to shine. Um, but managing habitat, working with habitat, there's no doubt. I'm a patient person. I'm willing to give it all the time it needs. And I just know that it will be successful. So that's probably, you know, if you're going to do management, you figure out what you're good at and work on that. If you're going to be working with habitat, you got to figure out how habitat works and how you can make it better. Maybe you should change your email tagline to plants over people. Instead of, no, right now I, it's I working to keep this planet healthy. I can't. I have to make sure people stand back and look at the big picture. Too but, many people, they, they just, they get way too focused in the weeds and they got to step back and realize we only have one planet. And shame on us if we don't look at it as a whole. I like it. We're all about ecological perspective on the podcast. And this is going to bring us to the next part of our podcast section. Let's science do the literature. Okay, (laughs) this is the part of the podcast where we are going to recommend a book, a blog, or a paper. And Jessica, take it away. Yeah, that was a really good segue, Marty, into um, some of the things that I've chosen for today to think about. One of them is a book that, if you haven't read it, you should. It's really good. It's called Bringing Nature Home by Doug Talami. Megan and I had the opportunity to see him speak 
um, relatively recently. It was really great to see him speak. I've been wanting to see him speak for a while now. Um, he's an entomologist, like myself, and he has this holistic view of, of taking a step back and saying, what can we do for our backyard, right? So that's what this Bringing Nature Home book is about. Taking a step away from, you know, thinking about prairies and prairie management, this book will tell you how and why you can plant your backyard to support critters. So um, it's a really great book. It kind of shows Doug's own evolution of how he changed the way he was landscaping his yard and what happened in, through that process. How many more birds came? How many more insects came? So he documented all of that. Um, he's got some really good um, recent PNAS articles about this as well. I can't stick to just one, you know. I gotta go. I gotta continue to talk about Doug Talami. He does really great work. Um, so, you know, back to Marty's point about seeing the big picture. That's really what this book is all about: um, is is doing your part to to make your own yard, um, your own backyard, whatever wherever your surroundings are, a little bit more. Um, a little bit more diverse. And the so, eye-opening thing, Jess, before we move yeah, on, about yeah. that talk that we both went to, I had no idea that there were that. I mean, I'm an ecologist, and so often I think maybe too much about the big picture, and I <laughs> need to spend more time on the pieces. And I didn't know that so many of our moths are specialists and that they need, you know, different, like that we have some that just need maple trees and some that just need box elder and some that just need oak trees. I mean, I knew this in theory, but I didn't realize how many. And he showed so many ridiculously awesome photos of these moths that are using stuff. So you should check the book out just because you're going to learn a lot and expand your knowledge about things that you maybe think you already know. But it's just to be, I don't know, that put in front of you, like right in front of your face to see those really amazing images. I was blown away. I went home and I counted the number of trees that I have in my yard. And I was like, we have some work to do here. <laughs> I have a lot of prairie plants in my yard, but I know. Yeah, the trees are really where it's at for the moths. The um, he he points to this website too that we learned in um, during his talk. It's called Native Plant Finder. We'll link to it on our website, and it's really great. You can put in your location, your um, your zip code, your address, and you can get specific results for your area. And it, it'll it'll show you what plants you basically get the most bang for your buck in terms of um, host plants for um, butterflies and moths. So it's a really great great website and um, that was that was made by Doug Talami, and it does it's, it it blows you away how many different insects you can support with a single oak, for example. Um, so that that's a really great resource. Um, another one that I really wanted to talk about today that I, I talk about this frequently, I can't get enough of it, the Upper Midwest Citizen Science Monitoring Guide for Native Bees. And uh, Marty, I don't think I've told you this, uh, probably should have before now, but <laughs> here you go anyway. Uh, I used this protocol out on uh, Lincoln WPA a couple summers ago just to get a sense of um, it, it, you can use it to monitor bees. So the, the beautiful thing about this is that it's very simple. Um, it gives you great pictures and resources at the back to very simply um, identify bee guilds. 
and, and anybody can do this. Anybody can um, pick this up and, and do this. And so you could do it on a piece of land um, that you manage or that you visit frequently to get a sense of what bees are there and um, you know monitor that site over time. So I really like Lincoln WPA. It's a, it's a really beautiful prairie. Um, it must be a, a newer planting, Marty, because it does not, it's not dense nesting cover. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll be honest, I think that's in Lincoln County. No, it's uh, south of uh, Lake Crystal. County. Oh, oh, over here. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's in Blue Earth County. Sure. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> We don't know what county which, which it is. Which is not in our district, is all I'm saying. Oh. So... Okay, I'll look at the map again. I I appreciate that. I can pass that on to Chris, I believe, who would have been plant who did plant that. (laughs) It's a nice planting if you're if you're out that way. Thank you, Jess. It's got some good bees too. So uh, we'll link to this on our website as well. It's a it's a really great protocol. Just you know, lots of people are interested in bees. Bees are really hard hard to ID to species. Most of the time it takes, um, you know, destructive sampling. So this is a protocol that you can use that doesn't require destructive sampling. You can go out there and, um, and learn your bees. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about today was a, a relatively new article in um, the journal Wetlands. And this, I, this isn't in your work area. This is in the Morris um, district, but pretty close to home. The title is Distribution and Concentration of Neonicotinoid Insecticides on water, Waterfall Production Areas in West Central Minnesota. And I, um, they have another uh, subsequent article talking about, I believe, chironomids in particular. But um, this is the one I had, I wanted to talk about today. So these were, this was a study in, in the Morris um, district area. They had 40 wetlands that they sampled, and they looked at neonicotinoid say that five times fast, concentrations in, um, in these wetlands. This is, a, this is a, a concern of a lot of folks is, you know, whether or not there's transport and movement in the environment of neonicotinoids, a highly toxic um, insecticide for insects. Yes. And so they found that um, 29 of the sites they sampled had at least one of three neonic um, insecticides in them. You know, and these are sites that are buffered or, or perceived to be buffered by um, by ag. So I don't know what it would look like in your district, Marty, you know, a, a similar study like this. When you say they're buffered, Jess, you mean these are sites that have, mm-hmm. like, extra land around the perimeter yep. of the wetland that would kind of be a first line of defense for anything that might be coming right. in. That's They've got uplands between the wetland and the nearest ag field. Yeah. Also, what's a chironomid? A uh, midge. You yes. may know them as midges. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry. Appreciate it. Just a little bit in the entomologist head for a second. Pull you out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, good. It's interesting. And we need more science around neonics because we're, we there's a, there's a lot of things that we, we think we know, but it's, that's why research comes in because, and that's why I like podcasts because we're trying to bring in the research aspect, but also practitioner experience because you really need both to understand the full picture of what's going on. Yep. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Jess? Take a hike. I think I will. And I think I will with Marty by gummy. 
So today, this is the part of the podcast where we highlight some of your amazing public lands. And so because Marty is our special guest today, we're just going to turn this over to him and we're going to give you a few of Marty's faves around the Wyndham area that he's going to recommend that you visit. He's going to tell us a little bit about why. And then as always, you can find these on the DNR Recreation Compass, which you just can put that in your Google machine and then you type in the name of the unit. And you can also, if you don't know the name of the unit, you can just scroll around where you want to go. You can use the map feature and you can find some of these places. Marty, tell us about some of your faves. Where are we hiking? Well, well both, two of them are going to be close to Wyndham. One is in Jackson County. It's called String Lake Waterfall Production Area. And it's got some great native prairie on it um, and some actually rare species on it. And it's kind of a, a well, a, a ravine look to it, but it's it's not as tight as a ravine, but it's got water, you know, a nice long wetland in the bottom of it. And the side hills are native prairie, basically probably, probably because we could not farm them. Um, and I know that previous to us owning it, it had a lot of grazing on it with cattle. And to be truthful about it, that's probably what kept it looking as good as it does today because the trees did not um, overcome that piece of property, probably because of the grazing that happened to it. They provided disturbance. That is correct. Which neat. Yes, yes they do. So that's one of them. Um, the next one is in Cottonwood County, which would be just north of that, and probably about six, eight miles northwest of Wyndham. And it, very similar landscape, a uh, couple smaller wetlands down on the bottom, a couple wetlands up on top. Um, again, some real nice native prairie on those side hills out there. And it's just a, it's a little longer unit little, and a little wider little more structure to it goes up and kind of does a dog leg to the east up on the top and uh, again has some great native prairie on it um, and you know a little bit bigger native prairie areas uh, where you can get out and find some of those uh, species that you don't often find some of those flowers and stuff like that so those are two of them real close to where I work the other one's a little further away um, it's over in Freeborn County, um, probably closest to Alden, Minnesota, and it is called Foster Creek, and out of... Is it WPA? Yes, it okay. is Foster Creek WPA, and out of probably a half section of property, it's probably like an acre, so it's a very small remnant prairie that's in there we seeded the rest of it but every time I get there I got to go take a look at that piece of remnant prairie because I was amazed when we got it for how small it was it was like a, an oasis out in the desert type of thing and it had an amazing amount of forbs on it and it was just a little wetland with a little upland right in the middle of, of the egg metrics type of thing it was gorgeous. So I got to check it. Is every it bigger time I get now? There. Did you add well, more restoration? Yes, yes. We, it? we okay. made several wetlands and several upland 
you know, like I say, it's, it's about a half section of property now okay. that we have there. It's just in the middle is this little piece of awesomeness. Can you tell, now this is a true sign, we do this sometimes at our, at our plant community trainings, we stand people in a line, as ridiculous as this is, and we have them walk in a line, and then I, I mean, so I have them make animal noises when they think they've crossed the transition line, either into, uh, we did it two different ways. One year we did it, okay, do you think you're in a dry prairie, and then where do you cross the line into music, and then when into wet, to help them see the shifts in the plant communities, because they're so subtle, and then yeah. one year, but we also did, where's the restoration? So we did, when, <laughs> when do you think that you crossed the line into remnant versus restoration? So can you pass that test when you cross the line? Do you know when you've hit it? Or have you done such a good job? No, 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 no. I <laughs> did not do that good of a job. <laughs> but, okay, may, maybe some people who are not seasoned like I am, you know, <laughs> would may not be able to see that. But... Most likely, you'd be able to see that it, it, it's a, you know, from native prairie into something that's seeded. Well, it would take a long time to cover that track up. I've <laughs> yeah. never seen it get covered up anyhow. That's <laughs> all I can say. So yes, one would probably be able to find that line. I just was curious if you. I I assumed you would be able to. Find well, it. my problem is I know where that line is, so of course it'd be <laughs> way too easy because it was like a soybean that. field when I first saw it. It's like knowing the answer on a test. You're like, this test is easy. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my gosh, Marty. I just, we could go on forever. There's so many more things I want to ask you. We're going to have to take this off the podcast so that we can follow up with more conversation. But I am so appreciative of getting to spend as much time as I get to in the field with you. And all of that, when Jess and I get to spend time with you, is because of the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership, which is underneath the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Plan. And it's really, all it is is just people. And we say, it's just people working together to build a healthy, better landscape. I mean, that's what it's all about. And I feel very lucky that I get to spend this time here with you today and spend it with Jess. And I'm just really grateful that I get to learn from you. Not just ending here. How about you, Jess? Yep, I'm always grateful to spend time with Marty. I hope we can hang out during some more Prairie Plant ID trainings. Always a good time learning plant facts from both of y'all. And I learn insect stuff from you, Jess. Thanks. I have- Chironomid. I just learned Chironomid today. I was like, <laughs> she, said a, she said a C word. I don't know what it is. I'm an ecologist. I know a lot about a lot of different things. Just as a specialist, she knows a lot about a very particular group of things and many other things as well. You know, really, you know your plants very well. Let's don't. Well, well, they're important for insects. Yeah, they kind of have to. (laughs) Yeah, everything's all connected. That's how it works. Well, we hate to end it, but we are going to end it here today. We hope that you catch us next time on the Prairie Pod where we are going to cover the Native Prairie Bank easement program with the one, the only, Rhett Johnson and his magical vest of stuff. So we'll learn what the program is, how you can sign up, and how do you really know that prairie is native, which we touched on a little bit today. And we're going to give a shout-out to String Lake WPA again. So it's going to be a good time. As always, you can catch all of the resources that we've mentioned today, including the Take a Hikes and the Let's Science section on our website on mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. We'll catch you all next time. Check you later, Megan. <laughs>
Thank you, guys. Thanks, Marty. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>